0: This is an AMI podcast. I'm Jyothi Gupta, and this is The Pulse. COVID-19 is a global phenomena. The impact of the pandemic, however, has not been the same across nationalities and groups of people. Indigenous and racialized people, as well as disabled people, have borne the brunt of the pandemic and the resulting economic fallout public health measures designed to keep everyone safe have had disproportionate impacts on people from marginalized communities. It's important to study the impact of race on public health policy, both to better serve black and people of color during the present crisis, but also in order to plan for the future. Today, we discuss racism and COVID-19. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. My guest today is Roberta Timothy. Roberta is program director of Black Health at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Roberta is also adjunct professor in the Critical Disability Studies program at York University. Her research right now looks at the impact of the pandemic on Black and African communities. Roberta, welcome to the program. It's really great to have you with us. Thank you. It's really nice to have a familiar, well, I like face a voice, I guess. It's nice to have a TA from way back when, when I was an undergraduate. According to your research, what has the impact on the Black and African community been of the pandemic?
1: So my, my work pertains to working in, in, in the area of Black health. In terms of COVID-19, I have um, I'm the principal investigator for a research project that looks at Black Health Matters COVID-19, mm-hmm. um, that looks at the national and global issues relating to the experiences of COVID-19 in the Black communities. We know that early on in the pandemic, when we look at who was being disproportionately impacted, we could see that the rates uh, for African people, Indigenous people, and racialized peoples were, um, you know, that were they were heavily being impacted. And that was not based on um, folks having, you know, chronic illness, but it's actually folks not experiencing equity within our healthcare systems locally and globally so my research was focused in one particular area because you know the funding is um, not always present so i i I focused on a community one community that i come from or Mm -hmm. a community that i come from um, and was looking at uh, the heterogeneous communities of African people and um, looking at the impact of COVID intervention. So what's being done and also how are people resisting? How are people fighting back in terms of um, against anti-Black racism and uh, health, what I call health violence?
0: As we dig into some of your findings, I'm curious about whether some of the, the measures, the public health measures that were put in place during the pandemic, things like the lockdown uh, that we've had, whether those measures have had an Unintended and adverse, con- you know, impact on people from the Black and African community.
1: Definitely, I mean, I think the, you know, lockdowns were, um, people, people had, you know, these public health measures that did not look at kind of the the Black realities, like what mm-hmm. were the realities for Black communities. One being that, um, you know, housing insecurity existed before COVID nineteen, so folks already, it's very difficult um, in terms of housing in. In Canada and also globally. Um, So that was an issue, you know, first of all, where people were housed, how people were housed, people were in multi-generational homes and not having access to um, really doing, you know, social distance when you have um, living in a small space and living with with multiple peoples. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, you know, in terms of you can have a lockdown, but when you're a central worker, who's actually working? So you had a lockdown when, you know, when people were at home and and doing things, but there is a, a large community of, of African Indigenous and racialized peoples who are working on a daily basis, working in the supermarkets, who are the PSW workers, um, personal support workers, who are, you know, the who are driving the bus so the the um the reality is that the exposure to covid nineteen was also higher based on you know segregated or apartheid like employment that happens within the black community and other racialized groups, so that uh the lockdown yes, it was needed but i i don't mm-hmm. think these other things were taken into consideration also in terms of folks living with disabilities there are many black folks living with disabilities, including myself, and you know um people who were who were who were on um disability. Um, they did not receive extra funds, you know, so that we mm-hmm. had this whole serve with all these resources being um, given for people. Wow, 2000 extra. Like, what would that do for, you know, Black, Indigenous, racialized folks who are living with disabilities on a regular basis? Because we know that um, having a disability means that your your income is usually... Um, impacted right and that, that has to do with ableism you know also included anti-black racism and other other um, types of, of violence so these pieces were not the intersectional realities of black community and other communities were not to, were not thought about in terms of the lockdown and it had detrimental effects did it need to happen of course it did but did it need to happen mm-hmm. in a health equity or what i would say an inter, intersectional anti-oppression lens yes and that's not what happened
0: and why do you think it didn't happen? Was it just that everybody was rushed? They didn't know what was coming, or do the roots of these problems predate COVID nineteen? One
1: hundred percent predate. I mean, it's. I think it's easier for folks to think about, you know, that things are unintentional. I mean, even the co- the whole kind of history of unconscious bias training, we got to look at the kind of the intentional um, colonial history of Canada or Turtle Island. Like we come from a place mm-hmm. in space. You know, where, um, where, where, uh, inequities and violence have occurred with indigenous peoples in this land and also with African peoples and, 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 uh, racialized peoples in this land. So yes, this was, this was before COVID-19. Was there, was there anti-black racism? Yes. Was there violence? Yes. Was there distrust? Was there lack of resources? 100%. This intensified now during COVID-19. I also want to say that in march 2020 you know many black health leaders in the community went out even including myself you know and and, um in the media which is not something that we always want to you know be in but hey we did and talked about the you know the detrimental impacts and what could what we saw was happening and what could be you know kind of more intensified um problematic violence in the community and that was denied you know by the chief minister of health and we were told that race was not a factor in terms of COVID-19. And we saw later on that, you know, anti-Black racism was declared a public health crisis in Mm -hmm. in Ontario, and that that the the reality was that um, it it had a lot to do, if not everything to do, with higher COVID-19 rates, higher COVID-19 deaths, and continued impact right now in terms of um, vulnerability to other types of inequities, including housing, employment, educational Uh, Grief. There's a lot of folks in our community who are dealing with mental health um, based on the the amount of grief that our community has been experiencing for not only two years, but actually over 500 years if we're looking at the history of anti-Black racism in in the context of uh, locally and globally.
0: Right. You can't ignore the broad sweep of history, but just to pick up on what you were saying before when we think about the last 2 years we've had some shocking examples of racism in our healthcare system i'm thinking yes. about the indigenous woman joyce Eshaquan, who yes. was videotaped in those horrible conditions
1: absolutely how Apple. much
0: of how much of this how much of this negligence around race stems from ideas, especially when it comes to the Black community, that the reason the community is so susceptible to COVID-19 and has those larger numbers that we were talking about is because of comorbidity, so the higher yeah. incidence of diabetes. Do you buy that argument?
1: I actually don't, because if we look at, at why and how um, diabetes rates are, why do we have di- high diabetes rates in the Black mm-hmm. community? Why do we have... Um, you know, cancer research—less uh, research done in terms of cancer research. Why do we have higher HIV um, rates, etc., other chronic health issues? There's a there's a direct connection to the experience of colonial violence and anti-Black racism, and this hasn't been um, measured accurately. So the, the the need for race-based data to actually prove some of the things that we already know in terms of our lived experience is really critical in this context. So it is actually a, a, a cop out to talk about comorbidity with not talking about the impact of anti-Black racism and colonial violence. I come from um, an African enslaved peoples. I, I, via the Caribbean, you know, I come from a history of being taken away from my family and families in the continent of Africa and being put on a small island where you cannot can't escape, where my family for generations worked and worked with no pay. My my family then immigrated here. Uh, my mom came here as a domestic worker. That was the only way she could come into this country, and uh, that resulted in a history of, of working class, um, you know, spaces and, and places which I I come from. Mm-hmm. All of the health issues and um, health dilemmas that my family has are directly related to the impact of transgenerational trauma, right? And having mm-hmm. to uh, manage and handle and to live. With not only experiencing anti-Black racism and the impact mentally, but the physical assaults. And what I mean by that, look, look at COVID-19 and look at the, uh, the the police violence on our community that that has happened. For many mm-hmm. people who were dealing with what you know folks would call quote unquote disabilities, right? Depending on your definition of disabilities, people who were dealing with mental health challenges were also folks who were then um, you know um, victims of police violence when they called mm-hmm. for help in Canada. That's a really important connection. That just doesn't happen. That happens in a context where black people's lives are not considered valuable and where mm-hmm. our health system you know, does not promote or support health and wellness or healing and wellness from our communities. And that has a direct result on, on the impact of our health.
0: Yes, it's true. And yet we're in this sort of strange moment in history where I feel like unlike previous uh, eras or even before the pandemic, we've never had as much attention paid to mental health. And so you've got this Minister of Mental Health and you've got all of this dedication and all of this talk and ostensibly all of this money going into mental health for Canadians. How central is the is is our cons- considerations of race and colonization in that work, or is it just more of the same?
1: That's a really important question. I really love your question, I have to say. Um, I think, it, you know, having mental health supports is critical. I think, you know, even looking at COVID-19, it's going to be interesting and in looking at it at, you know, many people who are living with um, long COVID and, and kind of the increased population of folks who are living with a disability or accessibility need. so that's one thing that i think is is also changing in this in this landscape i think mental health resources are critical but what types of resources are they living in a colonial society living uh, you know as a person who has dealt with massage noir um, anti-black racism ableism um, and many other factors i think it's the type of uh, mental health services Um, is really important. I'm also a a psychotherapist. I actually train and teach people um, in anti-oppression psychotherapy. And the the model that we developed, myself and Mercedes Humana, actually is a model that actually challenges colonial violence and the impact that it Mm -hmm. has on our life. So what I'm saying is, yes, it's great to have monies put into these programs, but do these programs reflect our cultural relative, our cultural, not even cultural relative, cultural important types of practices of wellness and healing. Do they reflect an anti-oppression lens? Do they reflect spaces where, you know, African, indigenous, and racialized folks, and I would say also purposefully marginalized folks, are Mm -hmm. able to actually get healing and wellness if we're utilizing the same models that actually, you know, were created by mainly white males that kind of uphold uh, more white supremacist um, ideology in terms of mental health, are we really doing change and are we doing care and wellness work for our communities? And I would say no. So we have to challenge our models of psychotherapy, of wellness, of how we do healing um, as our communities are dealing with constant um, acts of violence and also having to try to survive and thrive in, in, in different ways. So more money directed to uh, culturally supportive counseling and therapy that actually can actually Change and change people's lives and support them through the healing process is what I would advocate.
0: My guest today is researcher and health advocate Roberta Timothy. So, Roberta, I wanted to ask you also about the vaccine rollout, which has had some bumps and false starts and all kinds of other problems in Canada. How effectively did the Canadian government at various levels? reach out to the Black community to ensure that they were addressing vaccine hesitancy and also ensuring a supply of vaccines to people who might want them?
1: Well, I think um, I I don't, first of all, I don't use vaccine hesitancy. Mm. Vaccine hesitancy does not speak to the historical and uh, contemporary uh, factors that actually make um, the Black community distrust a healthcare system. So I think mm-hmm. it's you know the the vaccine distrust or the the vaccine mistrust comes from a history again of you know experiencing anti-black racism within the healthcare system and also a history of real um, vaccine violence that has occurred in our communities locally and globally. So I want to put that into context first. Mm-hmm. I can remember some early discussions and these are like April 2020 and you know dates are important for COVID right when we look at the that's mm-hmm. been happening for the last two years. And I remember having discussions about vaccine rollout. And folks were saying at this point, you know, there was no vaccine, obviously, and there was, you know, beginnings of research in this area. And um, I was bringing some of those, and myself and other other health equity um, scholars and activists and folks in the communities were saying, what is your plan in terms of this rollout for our communities? Because Because of the history and the current day distrust, of you know um, healthcare systems based on experiencing of violence and isolation, etc. Um, how are you? How is this actually going to happen? And even it was you know an alarm. It was an alarm to um, public health and folks who were having these conversations that they really needed to have more of a, a local, regional, and national strategy regarding um, vaccine rollout for communities who have been harmed, right mm-hmm. from public health measures before, etc. And that was something that was. Um, really not taken up. It was something, again, when you, you know, you, you continue with the conversation that race-based data and race or racism doesn't matter regarding COVID-19, we're all in this together type of logic mm-hmm. or rhetoric, um, then this caused a real, real problem. So there was no, um, what I was suggesting and other folks was, you know, first of all, admitting that there's an issue and there's a problem, right? that there's that there's And yeah. kind of looking at a at a solution that would would be community based, um, and you know, it, and have would have different stakeholders in the community to do different types of rollout. That didn't happen, um, and we saw kind of a scramble. I think the, the vaccine came out in was it December, December mm-hmm.
0: 2020, I believe. Yeah, I think that's about right. Right, and
1: mm. um, so there was a scramble then to, you know, get folks vaccinated, in and it was a problem. People were not wanting to get vaccinated because. There was no, there was, there wasn't a campaign. There wasn't any types of support to kind of bring the community to the table. And then what happened? And then there was, then there was a, there was then a, a Black strategy um, created, and there was, you know, a lot of um, support, a lot of amazing uh, Black health practitioners and racialized practitioners, you know, really did amazing work, um, thinking of the communities of Scarborough, Brampton you know, um, Central Toronto, Mississauga, and they really did some really amazing community outreach and got, you know, a lot of our community members, and I say our, I'm talking about Black, Indigenous, and racialized community members, um, South Asian specifically, got them to be comfortable and to get vaccinated. So mm-hmm. that was, I think, uh, an amazing thing. However, it was too late. It was really too late in some ways. I mean, I mean it's, I don't know if it's late or not late. It was good that people got vaccinated, but there's a lot of people who still... Are struggling with you know getting vaccinated Mm -hmm. so there are still folks who didn't buy into it because it was it was done in such a rush and kind of not thought out way so i think one did it work yes the community has to step out you know the community is a community in resistance fighting back etc and they did a lot of amazing community health center places and spaces did a lot of um, vaccine work but i think that it could have come in a really more effective way and i think we would have had higher numbers of people taking the vaccine and again, you know, when we look globally, even having access to a vaccine doesn't happen mm-hmm. for most of our communities outside of, of uh, Canada. So I think there's been discussions also in terms of what does that mean? This is a whole notion of vaccine hesitancy, quote unquote, when in fact there's, you know, vaccine apartheid in terms of who gets access and not globally. So it's such a bigger discussion. That I think is sometimes watered down. When We look at the the Canadian context only because we are, unless we're indigenous people to this land, we come from other transnational realities, right? So that needs to be taken into consideration. My family back home doesn't have access to vaccines the way we have here.
0: Yes, that's a really good point. So let's talk about it because when we do talk about the transnational rollout of the vaccine, you're right. There are countries where the uptake of vaccines have been very low because they're not available. It's plain and simple. How much of that is the fact that maybe the implementation of COVAX was bungled? Yeah. That's what everyone is saying. There's been a lot of mismanagement. And how much of that would you say is beyond, goes beyond mismanagement to, to circle back to the point you were making earlier about the impact of colonization and maybe yeah. even structural adjustment on some of these African right. countries and the debt that they're dealing with? What do you well,
1: think? Oh, I think there's definitely a connection. We, we're living in a colonial society, colonial reality. And I think if we cannot see if, as we get our third and fourth booster in this country, and folks don't even have access to um, their first, you know, vaccine, that we know that there's there's a colonial divide and reality mm-hmm. in terms of who should survive COVID and who should not, right? So I think that it's, it's, it's not only just a, an analysis, like we can just see it in the numbers, you know, in terms of who actually has access and who doesn't. And I think that tells us, again, you know, how the how colonial violence works, and what I what I want to say in terms of um, you know structural adjustment programs is as you know structural adjustment programs um, they actually create a hold on social spending, right? So mm-hmm. this has been set up for you know um, many many years at different different countries and mostly um, countries in the south, but uh, structural adjustment does happen here also, um, where you know social spending is cut and and folks have to really struggle for health care, you know, and healthcare and healthcare support. So when you see a once in a hundred year pandemic, you know, and structural adjustments is a directly a result of colonial violence and colonialism, we can see that countries who didn't have the monies to have hospitals and community centers and drugs and medication and all those supports are the same countries who also didn't have access to COVID nineteen vaccines. Yes, there has been some global uh, support, But even with that global support, unfortunately, the lens is that we are giving you this, like it's something like you were, you know, like almost like a volunteer thing, but not mm-hmm. looking at the global context of world citizenship and also the fact of all of the resources that they're taking from the South on a daily basis. Just look at your cell phone, you know, to, to that would, if you think about what what people get from the South, we actually owe owe folks from the South you understand, in terms of, and I'm not only talking about reparations, but I'm talking about Mm -hmm. economic disparities that exist within a colonial system that purport Canada, U.S., Europe as countries with money on the backs of folks from the South, racialized folks, Black folks, and this continues that kind of cycle. So I think it's a really good example of colonial violence when we see COVID-19. Also, one other thing that I want to mention is the notion of eugenics, folks don't want to always talk about it, but I think it's really important, particularly when we're talking about disability, race, colonization. When COVID-19, uh, we were first talking about, you know, the coronavirus in, like, March 2020, and folks were talking about, you know, folks who have chronic illnesses and, and older people, and, you know, they're the ones who will be dealing with uh, COVID-19 and probably um, not able to survive. There was a whole kind of, if you, if you go back to the media, it was a me- it was very disturbing, that campaign, uh, and very ableist and very racist mm-hmm. about who was going to survive and who was not going to survive. And I think if you look at the context of it globally, that's what colonization does, right? It, it creates death, loss, and it chooses who is the strongest or who is the mightiest and who mm-hmm. is not, and then gives resources to those communities, which is exactly what has happened. You know, so who has the access to money, who has access to resources that are not theirs are governments that, you know, or countries where we we've, we've have access to three vaccines, four vaccines, and then we're looking at other countries saying, oh, no, they don't have access, and they have vaccine hesitancy, which is actually not talking about the real type of eugenics uh, mm-hmm. factors when you look at COVID-19. There's certain people who need to survive in this world, and there's other folks who, who people are not valuing their survival or their life, and that's a real problem.
0: It is, and we've sadly only got about a minute to answer this next question, which is, what do you think we should do about it?
1: Well, I think number one is having these conversations. Conversations are really important. I also think about action. I, I'm, a, you know, I, I grew up as a kid um, being a part of the anti-apartheid movement in the Canadian context, and you know, boycotts. Like, I am like so tired of folks talking about, and people ask me like, what do, you, what should we do with it? Well, I'll tell you one thing: is like have. Have, do more than just um, have the conversations at home. You know, lobby your, lobby your, uh, your politicians or your MPs. Um, let's, we could, we could have a, a separate campaign. You know, raising money, money and raising vaccine support um, for our communities back home. We have to look outside of the box to create solutions for these, these issues. We're never going to like just, you know, from a colonial system is never going to say, hey, you who is the colonized, can you? You know what, what it's interesting people actually what to do and resources are not given. We have to look outside of those those places and spaces and try to come up with, um, with some ways to to, do, to survive. And I have to say that we are. There's so many stories and examples locally and globally, you know, and my research is bringing that, that out. We're still collecting data, so we're not done with data analysis, it's like tentative results, that the communities locally and globally are actually doing things. They're creating their own interventions. There's people who might be you know cooking for people. People are sharing meds. I mean, I know that's something that, People will be like, oh, dude, that's not—you know—you're not supposed to do that. But globally, even locally, it happens when people don't have access to medications. There are people who are supporting folks with, you know, different mental health supports. Different job losses happen, so you know, different families are blending incomes to be able to survive. There's so many things that are happening that I think that we need to to look at. There's a lot of food insecurity, and, and there's a lot of, um, you know, growing of garden food and, what, you know, what we call, just food that just grows. Or, you know, how do you use your food to actually support? Other folks to support your neighbor. Those are some changes. I think there needs to be policy change and implementation of action, right? Where you see all these anti-black racism statements against anti-black racism against all of these things, but actually, how are you acting? Are the resources um, not these kind of you know three months, six months, a year contracts, but longevity in terms of resources and funding? Um, those are some of the some of the things that I think are important, but also challenging what we know and what we think. We do not want to go back to the norm of white supremacy, of of ableist culture, of, you know, all of these um, places and spaces where racism and sexism, um, heterosexism, ableism, and um, even refugee violence, etc, is condoned. We have to constantly uh, fight against it and, 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 and step up as a as a community, and I mean as a community, and when I'm talking now is even as, um, you know, Black, Indigenous, and racialized and purposely marginalized peoples who have been oppressed, we need to also create more solidarity amongst our movements and and really work together to um, not only deconstruct but dismantle all colonial violence in all of our lives.
0: Roberta, thank you very much for speaking to us today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That was Roberta Timothy. Roberta is program director of Black Health at the Dalhousie School of Public Health at the University of Toronto and also adjunct professor in the Critical Disability Studies program at York University. That's all the time we have today and thanks a lot for listening to the program. Our technical producer is Nasrina Bulmajid, and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. Thanks a lot, stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day.